You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. And turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as the one who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion." For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you are new here, um, one of the oddities Uh, that you might not have experienced before in this room is you'll notice there's a whole lot of short people who yelp at inappropriate times or groan at inappropriate times. Um, We think this is good and glorious that our kids are in this room. Um, And uh, and, and one of the the signs of God's blessing of people um, throughout the Bible is the presence of children and the sounds of children uh, among God's people uh, wherever they are. And so when we gather for worship, the last thing we want to do is to evacuate the room of the sounds of children um, for fear that that sound might be distracting or that that sound might be upsetting or that sound might um, be annoying. Um, We think the sounds of children is just one more sign of the blessing of God, the kindness of God, and the mercy of God. Um, Doing that, we also acknowledge moms and dads as you try to wrangle sometimes very squirmy kids um, as you deal with the occasional yelp. Um, as you deal with uh, whatever um, comes up uh, over the course of a Sunday morning when you gather um, to worship, we we recognize that that actually puts a greater strain on you. We think that strain is actually a good strain, Um, another opportunity to lay down your life for the good of your children. See, we think there is something absolutely glorious happening with our children as we gather and they watch mom and dad kneel in the presence of God and confess their sins as they hear mom and dad singing, um, even when they sit through a sermon. Um, and, and the crazy thing is what God's doing in your kids may have absolutely, probably will have almost nothing to do um, with what's actually coming out of my mouth over the course of the next 30 or 40 minutes. Um, but it has more to do with just the, the recognized pattern that, that when we gather, God speaks from his word, he instructs us, um, and that it's okay to sit and listen um, and be just a little bit bored, although you don't have to tell me it was boring. Um, and, and so I just want to encourage you, if you're new here, um, and maybe you came and you don't have kids, uh, and you're watching the children come sprinting by, 
um, or a child tackles you or throws water on you. Um, hopefully no child, although it's hot enough that the water might be a blessing. Um, I would just encourage you that um, this is how the people of God have worshipped for thousands of years. It is a new novelty um, within kind of American church culture to pull kids out of worship. Um, we, we love that they're here. Um, we love their sounds. Um, they are, again, a sound of God's blessing. If you're here, um, mom and dad, and you have a particularly rough Sunday, um, the, the, your son or daughter just decided that this morning was the morning they were going to scream. Um, but one, we, we just honor the, the, the reality of, of what it means to wrangle kids Sunday, Sunday in and Sunday out, um, that that is part of your calling as a mom or a dad. Um, it is one very, very tangible way, um, although admittedly can be frustrating way, um, to, to love uh, your children, um, to delight in your children, to let in your life for the good of your children, um, and their presence here, even if it's a rough Sunday for you, um, is a blessing to us um, as a church. Now, inevitably, when I do one of those little explanations, uh, somebody loses their mind um, during the sermon, um, so we're, we'll just all count down and be excited for that. Um, I want to pray, and then we will uh, look at this text. So Father, we give thanks to you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace um, that you love us, even with um, our vaporous and small lives. Yet you love us and you direct every single part of it. I pray now, O oh God, that even in the face of the reality of um, what has led many to nihilism, to unbelief, to despair, God, that we'd find in the midst of that not the grounds for despair, but the grounds for joy. The grounds not for a lack of meaning in life, but the, 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 the foundation of any meaning at all. And God, that you would free us, even as we go from this place, to eat our bread with joy and to drink our wine with a merry heart, to love our husbands and our wives and our children, to go to work tomorrow and work diligently with our hands, whatever you've given us to do. And so God, take us from the, the precipice of what many in our culture um, has led them to despair and instead, God, give us the counterintuitive and gracious response of freedom and joy. All this we ask that you would do because of and on account of the work of Jesus and that you would do through your word. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin as we turn to this text by informing you of something as by way of warning and illustration. Um, warning in that um, th this news is going to shape forever the illustrations you will hear in this church um, and by illustration, well, you'll see. Uh, my kids for Father's Day bought me a cat. My wife thought that was funny. Um, they bought me a cat and... Um, in honor of the volleyball from uh, whatever the movie is, Castaway, um, they named the cat Wilson um, because my two oldest are going to college and they're saying the only one I'll have left to talk to is my cat. Um, I have wanted a cat for years. Every holiday, my kids ask me what I want and I would say either a motorcycle or a cat. Um, and uh, I got a motorcycle several years ago, so the only thing left was cats. So for the last several holidays, my answer has just been, I want a cat. Now, I wanted a cat for very specific reasons. I wanted a cat that would sit on my desk very calmly as I study and write sermons. I wanted a cat that at the end of the day would come and sit on my lap and purr very comfortingly. Um, I wanted a cat that would kill mice, although we don't have any mice so far. Um, uh, but I wanted a cat that would behave in particular ways. One of the strangest things about cats is you cannot determine how it will behave. I don't know if you have a cat, if you've ever experienced this with a cat, but you can't get a cat to do anything that you want. You can't get a cat to stop doing anything that you want. The cat has taken to precisely key moments of the day when I need the cat to fill its role perfectly by sitting on my desk and purring as I write sermons and think and pray or in the morning, having conversations, 
At these precise moments when I anticipated particular behaviors and desired particular behaviors from this animal, this cat loses its mind. It's on some sort of drugs. Some people call it catnip. It behaves more like it's on cocaine or meth and all the drugs. And it goes wild. Either attacking my feet or my arm or my elbow or my beard. Or sometimes worse, it follows the dog around and everywhere the dog sits down, the cat swats it in the face in a very hateful and mean, and I I would say, frankly, bigoted way. Um, There is no shepherding the cat. Um, And so I approached my mother-in-law, who is an animal expert, (laughs) with advice as to how do you shepherd a cat. How do you teach a cat how to behave? How do you teach a cat not to attack your elbow skin violently in ways that are painful? How do you teach it? Here's what she said. Well, you don't try to get it to stop. You don't hit it in the head. You don't throw it across the room. You don't try to push it away because then the cat, realizing this is something you don't want it to do, We'll simply do it with more vigor and violence and anger. This perfectly illustrates everything Ecclesiastes has been trying to say about life. Life is vapor. In other words, life is a cat, a small kitten who loses its mind at random times in ways that you can never predict, in ways that you can't prevent, in ways you really can't stop. That's what Ecclesiastes has been holding out to us and is going to lead us in Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon's prime example of why we all should know life is not shepherdable. It is vapor. Um, You can kind of, you can recognize that there's substance to it. There are real things that happen in this life. But the moment you try to direct it, the moment you try to tap it on its head so it stops biting your skin between your finger and your thumb that hurts so bad, um, the moment you try to get it to sit in one spot and just be happy and cuddly, it will bite you viciously, maybe even hiss and its tail gets real big. Like This is the nature of life. It is vapor and you cannot direct it. You cannot make it go the way you want it to go. You don't get to control it. And that is the bottom line kind of true thing that Solomon observes about the nature of the world. Um, It doesn't matter whether you set your course to pursue pleasure or to pursue kind of some lasting influence or to build really big buildings or to be remembered generations from now. Um, Whatever you set out to do, you can't manage it. You can't control it. One of the graces, and it is a grace, it's been given to our culture over the course of the last uh, around 100 years as post-modernity has developed, as we've moved, and even in the sciences from a more Newtonian approach to physics to more um, the the craziness of quantum physics. um, uh, All of these shifts have been the culture simply recognizing that reality. That, That life cannot be directed, guided, shepherded, controlled. Outcomes are not in the realm of human management. Now the the reality is, is that unbelief looks at that truth and it leads ultimately to nihilism and despair. I believe we're living in in a cultural moment marked most deeply by meaninglessness and despair. And the the sexual insanity of our age is simply the convulsions of a culture that is is trying to come to terms with the fact that everything we thought we could control over the last several hundred years um, is being proven that we can't. 
We can't manage it. We can't direct it. We can't make things go the way that we think they should go. We, we can't craft the perfect society in which all people are happy. We can't craft the perfect form of government uh, where, where justice is done. And people can flourish in all the different ways in which they flourish. We can't even manage the details of our day-to-day life. We can't prevent death. And this is what Solomon brings us face to face with in the first six verses of this chapter. As he's tried to provide evidence chapter after chapter after chapter of the reality that we can't manage anything, giving us tips on how to live in the midst of that culture, he now kind of brings his ace of spades and lays it on the table. Because reality is, is you can't manage your own death. I don't care how many miles you put in this week running. Running perhaps from death. You can't stop it or prevent it or control it or manage it. I don't care how many cheeseburgers, double or triple even, you avoided this week. I avoided very few. You, because I had already embraced this truth, <laughs> you can't push off death. The reality is just statistically that, that more than half this room, at some point in the course of your life, will receive a diagnosis for cancer. And many of those will be terminal. Solomon lays on the table in the first six verses of this chapter the reality that the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Solomon looks out at the world and says, I don't care how many times you went to church. I don't care how well you sang. I don't care um, whether you did all the right things. You were careful to dot all the I's and check all the boxes. Or you were, you were just insane, just living however you wanted to live, pursuing whatever pleasure you wanted to pursue. Neither one prevents this from happening. You will die. And you might die this afternoon, or you might die 40 years from now, or 60 years from now, or next week. But you and I will die, and nothing, even religious things, righteous things, moral things, wise things, will prevent it. Happy Sunday. Gone for three weeks. You're like, you guys, who, are, who is this guy? He comes back, and now he's telling us we're all just going to die. And if you cannot control the end, how much less can you control exactly the direction or the outcomes of your life? The outcomes of your financial investments. <laughs> Especially this year. The outcomes of your career. You build an institution, something you give your life to build, and you think, I'm going to make sure this thing lasts and is solid and good and productive. Who knows what will come? What wild thing will happen? If we'll have a righteous ruler or an unrighteous ruler or righteous laws or unrighteous laws. If you can't control your death, how much less can you control um, the, 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 varying, the varying variables um, that come into every single facet of life? Um, you, you raise your kids in the hopes that they will be successful and they'll be wise and they'll be virtuous and they'll be godly. But who knows what direction their life will take? 
This is what Solomon confronts us with. And we live in a day and age in which we call it post-modernity, we call it all kinds of things. But, But the culture around us has looked at this reality, has recognized this reality. And the response has been meaninglessness. It's all meaningless. Therefore, live however you want. Make whatever meaning you want. Convulsing in a desperate attempt to just make up meaning. To make up something they can control. Or, culture has looked at this and embraced despair. The only meaning of life is death. Back in the 90s when I was in high school, there was a thing called goth. I was reminded of goth. Um, this week I was listening to a podcast about Harry Potter. It's neither here nor there. And uh, I was reflecting on the time these novels are coming out. Um, there was this whole movement in the youth culture for everyone to death, uh, dress like death, like vampires. There was even some quotes from famous loud Christian preachers talking about how our high schools are filled with vampires. You know, like the dark eyeliner and the pale... What's that stuff? Base. Makeup stuff. Like that was an expression of a whole view of the world, a whole despairing view of the world that that simply recognized everything is meaningless. Death comes for us all. We can't control outcomes. We can't make our life go the way we want our life to go. And therefore all the uh, the institutions we thought that um, that there was real meaning in, um, all the beliefs we thought there was real meaning in, in the end, death comes for us all. Therefore, death defines the very nature of life. And so we live in a moment we are constantly confronted by the temptation either to despair or to cast off all restraint and say, none of it has any meaning. Therefore, I'll just make whatever meaning I want. And I'll change it week to week, month to month. I'll do whatever... It is, I want. I want to think just a minute about a particular application of this as it comes to bear on our particular day-to-day lives. There is a kind of approach to life that is, it's conservative in nature and it's particularly appealing to those kind of live with a common sense realism approach to life. And it's this this belief that if I can follow the right pattern, if if I can say the right things in the right order, if I just do exactly what I'm supposed to do in the order that I'm supposed to do it, whether it's raising kids or it's in your marriage or it's with regards to your career or it's with regards to your health, whatever the thing is, same approach. I can control the outcome. You see in kind of religious systems where it says, hey, if I pray enough or I believe enough or I give enough to the church, the result will be blessing and goodness and wealth and health and and everything else will follow. That same kind of framework it takes more practical forms and kind of an approach to if I discipline my kids the right way, if I read the right Bible stories, then my kids will turn out the way I want them to. They'll look the way I want them to. They won't fall into the stupid sins that I did when I was 15. Or if I'm just diligent and work hard and I have integrity, and I, and I do my work that way, that then I'll be successful. I'll get promoted. I'll get raises. My boss will recognize what a gift it is to have me working at his company. 
things will go exactly the way I want them to go. But, but incipient in that approach to life is, is this belief that our job is to control outcomes, to make things go the way we think they ought to go. And it leads to all kinds of trouble. Let's say you pull it off. You are religious enough. What motivated that religious faithfulness was desired particular outcome. And then let's say that outcome doesn't happen. Because that happens all the time, by the way. If you've lived believing I should do these things because I want this payout at the end of the day, and you don't get that payout, you can begin to think that God has gypped you. You did your work. You earned that favor. Why didn't God give it? I've watched lots of people do all the right things, or mostly the right things. Pray the right prayers. Keep themselves from sinful desires. And one tragedy happens. One difficulty happens. They reach a pain point. And in their thinking, they rarely will say it, but in their thinking, the idea was, if I do all the right things, God won't give me hard stuff. And no tragedy will befall my life. Difficulty comes, and they walk away from the Lord. They hate him. Or, um, you... Don't live up to your standards. Maybe you didn't work as hard or you weren't as ingenious as you thought you could be in your job. Your marriage is just hard. Your kid is three. And and you think that the, the real problem at the root of everything that's happening is somehow your behavior was the root cause. And if you can just fix your behavior, you can fix your life. You can control the outcome. It's just an endless cycle of despair. You see, so many things for us, um, we are driven by, compelled by, I must control the outcome. Solomon's message to you is, You can't. It's not yours to shepherd. It's not yours to direct. It isn't in your hand at all. And oftentimes, kind of in nice Christian circles, we want to skip over that. We want to tell you like, hey, no, you need to do the right thing so you can get the right outcome. Um, If if you follow the right path, God will bless it. Um, And then there's all kinds of things in Scripture that that lend itself to that. Uh, but, But... And we we oftentimes want to skip over the hard message, the uncomfortable message of Ecclesiastes. I'm not going to do that for you this morning. You are going to die. Your career at one point or another is going to die. Your marriage is going to be difficult. Raising kids is going to be hard. In fact, your kid's life isn't going to turn out exactly how you think it ought to have. They may not be an Olympian. Met um, a man and his wife several years ago who were dedicating their lives and fortunes because they were committed that their four-year-old would be an Olympic skater. She didn't make the Olympics. I mean, I just... I don't mean to laugh, but I, I, you don't get to control the outcome. So, if the answer is not despair and hedonism, 
kind of a, 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 a living with a meaninglessness. How in the world does faith look at that in black and white on the page and respond with joy, with deeper meaning, with more solid footing? Um, and in one sense, like when you're confronted with these realities existentially, how do you just get up in the morning and live? Solomon lays out for us a couple of things I want to point out to you in this chapter that, that define for us how to live wisely in a world that's just like this. How do you do it? So, that there's one thing you need to recognize, a list of things you should do, and two things you need to believe. First, what do you need to recognize? Even in this chapter, but it's been throughout the entire book, there are better things and worse things. Solomon, over and over again in this book, has stopped in these moments in which you'd think he'd say, well, it's all meaningless anyway, who cares? Um, which is where unbelief goes. And instead he stops and goes like, but even given this reality, it's better to be wise than it is to be a fool. He says that in this chapter. He also says it's better to be alive and know that you're going to die than it is to just be dead. So, so there is a, a kind of recognition in the nature of living out our life in the world that there are better ways to live not better ways because they guarantee a particular outcome but just better ways of existing in the world in other words nihilism is not the answer the answer is that there is a way of living a way of being a way of recognizing and knowing certain things and living in the light of them in this world that is better as opposed to other ways that are worse and one of the interesting things in this chapter is that it is better to be alive and to know that death is coming than it is to just be dead. Um, his, his comparison here is it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion or a dead cat in our home. What is that? Well, it's a theme that's not unique in Scripture here. I mean, the psalmist says, teach us to number our days. Teach us to know our end, to know that an end is coming. Now, there is something foundational to living well, to living wisely, to living with skill in this world that is contingent upon the fact that whether you're 15 or whether you're 45 or whether you're 96, recognizing and knowing and anticipating the fact death is coming. There's something about that knowledge which leads to more skillful living. And in this chapter, he's not just saying, hey, be a nihilist because death takes everything anyway. No, he says to us, no, there's something that you will do and live differently today. In fact, this afternoon, if you can stop for a moment and recognize the fact that you and I are going to die. So that's first. Solomon tells us that you can live better knowing that death is guaranteed than otherwise. So what does that life look like? And then last, what are the two things you need to believe in order to respond to that knowledge about death in the what appears to be insane way that he calls us to live today? First, how does he call us to live? What does he call us to do? Some of the best verses in all of the Bible. Unless you're gluten intolerant. First, how do you live in a world like that one? Go eat your bread with joy. Very complex, difficult instructions in this chapter for how to live well in a world in which you will die. Step one, eat bread. But don't just eat the bread, eat it with joy. 
How? How do you do that? We'll get to how in a second. But that's step one. That's what a life well lived looks like this afternoon when you go home, eat your bread with joy. Two, sorry to all my Baptists in the room, drink your wine, not because you have to and it's the only thing to drink and it probably doesn't have any alcohol in it anyway. No, drink your wine with a merry heart. So how do you live in a world like this one? Step one, you have no idea what legislation is going to come down the pike next winter. So what do you do? Eat your bread joyfully. Step two, drink your wine merrily. You have no idea if you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow. So what do you do today? Eat your bread with joy. Step two, drink your wine merrily. Isn't this wonderful? Step three. Okay, so you eat your bread, you drink your wine. God has already approved what you do. We'll come back to that in a second. Third, let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now this is not a preference for white shirts over against, say, green shirts. But it is saying something about the way you dress. How you dress matters. Now this is really, really, this is the most controversial ground I'll ever get into in Colorado. Way more than sexuality. I was talk, we were talking with some friends last night and they were, uh, um, having lived in Colorado, they'd gotten a, a wedding invitation. And they were deeply confused by the line that required them to wear semi-formal attire. They weren't sure what that meant, because in Colorado, that can mean Burks and some shorts, maybe a slightly nicer t-shirt that was ironed. Like, there is a way of dressing, a way of putting clothes on in the world, and what this is saying is not, eat your bread, drink your wine, and wear whatever you want. It's saying, eat your wine, I mean, not eat your wine, eat your bread, drink your wine, and dress for joy. Dress for life. Dress in a way that's marked by vibrancy and success and peace and and nobleness and virtue and goodness. We, in uh, particularly in the West, have um, we we've made joy and we've made virtue utterly internal. Doesn't matter what a person wears. Doesn't matter how they dress. It's what's in their heart that counts. That doesn't hold up to Scripture. When we gather in the presence of God, we should dress in a way that's fitting of a people who are marked by joy in the presence of God. Um, And so Solomon says, always wear white. Let them be clean. Let them be crisp. Let them be not a sign of poverty, not a sign of lack, but a sign of abundance. Let oil be on your head. Don't have dry dandruffy hair. um, Don't let your head be marked by mourning, by lack. You're just barely hanging on. No, let it look vibrant and healthy and alive and clean, and unsmelly. So, step one, eat bread joyfully. Step two, drink wine merrily. Step three, dress abundantly. And then the best line, you ready, men? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And I love this line, all the days of your vain life. (laughs) Eat, drink, get dressed, and then get undressed with joy and enjoyment. Enjoy 
the, the gifts that God has given you in your marriage um, with your spouse. Cultivate a home life. And, and here's the thing I want to point out to you. Um, a couple of things for you husbands that also have implications for you wives. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. First thing, whom you love. There is at the heart of this, in order to enjoy life with your wife and all the good things that come with that life with your wife, you must love your wife. And love in Scripture is never mere sentiment. It's never merely kind of a ticking of a box. It it is a a nurture. It is a care. It is a laying down your life for for the good of. It it is um, time and patience and pursuit and love. It's not, I'm just attracted to her. It's not, I go to my job all week, that's my love for her. Although go to your job, that is one expression of love for her. How do you enjoy life with your wife? Well, first thing, you have to love her. And two, notice it says, with your wife. Not enjoy life, and one part of your enjoyment of life is your wife, but no, enjoy life with your wife. Your life um, has now been knit together with your spouse. It is not independent of her or him. It is knit together by God and is to be enjoyed and received together. This line speaks of sex and everything surrounding sex. It is, um, the, the, um, particularly for you husbands, I want you to hear this, and wives, there are implications about this for you as well. Um, it is a joy-filled, marriage is a joy-filled responsibility, which is not the way that we think in our culture, but it is absolutely central to the whole conception of joy in Scripture. Um, uh, joy is never merely kind of passing time, doing something that you happen to like. It, it always involves carrying something. And it is in the carrying that you find joy. And so in this marriage, um, there is to be the pursuit of intimacy and love and patience and care and kindness and provision and protection. And wives, you would cultivate the kind of home and the kind of relationship and the kind of responsiveness that makes that joy possible, that the joy can grow out of. And husbands, you would pursue your wife in such a way that at times it feels like you're carrying something, but it is the pursuit of joy promised to you and given to you by God. And I think there's more joy here than in the bread, although the bread's good, which is why I spent more time on it. So step one, eat your bread joyously. Step two, drink your wine merrily. Step three, wear clothes that don't reflect slovenliness. I wanted to use that word this morning brokenness or despair or mourning, but wear clothes and dress yourself and clean clean yourself as one who has been given the gifts of God. And third, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because listen to this, that is your portion in life. And I've seen far too many men and far too many women discard easily their marriages, sometimes legally and sometimes just giving up on it. But it is your portion in this life. What kind of fool discards or neglects his marriage, his wife, for career or pleasure or drink or whatever end? What kind of fool makes life at home hellish and annoying rather than loving her husband? Lots do. Living well in this world involves eating and involves drinking and involves dressing and cleaning 
It involves your marriage and your kids and all the glorious and good responsibilities of family life. And last, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Last way to live in this world is whatever you set out to do, do it with all your might. As you go to your work, your job tomorrow, do it with all your might. If, as we did yesterday, you go to fix your sprinkler system in your backyard, even that, do it with all your might. And it is so annoying. But whatever you set out to do, whatever task is put in your hand, including your marriage and your family and sex and making bread and eating bread and drinking wine, do it with all your might because this is what God has given you to do. There won't be any of it in Sheol. So do it with wisdom and do it with skill and do it with effort. And do it with joy and do it merrily. Last, what do you need to see and believe in order for all of those things to be done? So you don't eat your bread in despair and drink your wine in gothiness or dress gothy. Gothy is kind of my new theme. Or hate your marriage. How do you do any of that? Well, he grounds that in two fundamental things, confessions about God in this text. First, look at me in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Step one, what do you have to believe and see to live this way? First thing is that your whole life, your, all of your deeds and all the fruit of those deeds are in the hand of God. We look at a world that is not manageable by our own means. We don't get to control the outcomes. But, but here's a confession of faith um, out of which any of that joy can come from. God manages all of it. Now the problem is he does so inscrutably. He does so in ways that I sometimes think if he would have gotten counsel from me, I would have told him to run that a little differently. But he doesn't need me. He's more wise than I am. He's better than you and I are. And so the very first ground, the very first thing you have to confess and believe is that um, though you and I don't shepherd any of it, though you and I don't even control the day of our death, God does. All of our life is in the hand of God. But that is not enough. You need something else. Why do you need something else? Because what if God hates you? That'd be terrible. Everything is in the hand of an all-powerful being who despises you. <laughs> that would be bad. That's not what it says. Step two, what else do you have to see and to believe? Look at verse seven. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Um, this actually, this in the Hebrew, uses the language of justification. Grounds of our salvation. Legal approval from the God of the universe. How do you eat your bread with joy and not timidly, not afraid, not, not fearful that you might be offending this God? He's already kind of mad at you. Um, how do you drink this wine? That, that Who knows if he even wants you to drink wine? That might be bad. I don't know. Like, um, how do you enjoy life with your wife? How do you go to work Monday and do that work diligently? How do you do any of it? Because the God of the universe has redeemed you, he has purchased you, and he approves of you. Isn't that amazing language? Not he tolerates you. Not you don't annoy him. He approves of your joyful eating of bread. Isn't that wonderful? Like that's a positive word, approval. 
He doesn't just let you eat bread. He rejoices that you eat bread. He doesn't just allow you to have the occasional glass of wine. He approves of it. Because you sit down to drink your wine and you pray your prayer before lunch today, you should know that the God of the universe nods and says, yes, drink your wine. Husbands and wives, he approves of your lovemaking. Not just he tolerates it, necessary evil, icky. He approves, he nods, he rejoices over it. All of the odd, small, and sometimes glorious um, joys that, that, that happen in the life of a home between husband and wife and father and children and wife um, and mother and children, all of those interactions that, that, that happen every single day he, and that, that fill us with joy. Like the, the moment, I mean, every morning, the first time I see my kids and they say, hey, dad, heart lifts. How does that happen when death pervades our world? Because God doesn't just tolerate it. He doesn't just allow it. He approves of it. Text from Timothy that we read earlier said that all things, bread and wine, and sex and laughter and games and yard work and drinking coffee and fixing sprinkler heads and even accounting, all of it, all of it is made holy through thanksgiving and prayer. How do you live in a world like this one that God is sovereign and if you have bread to eat today, it's because he gave it to you and he approves of you having it. How do you drink wine merrily in a world like this one because you recognize and know that God has given it to you and he approves of you enjoying it? How do you enjoy your marriage because you recognize that God has given it to you? It is precious. It is um, your, one of your inheritances in this life, and you receive it with thanksgiving and gladness. Because the God of the universe does not hold your sin against you. All of that sin fell on Jesus, and now God, in perfect righteousness and justice, gives gifts to his people. Bread, not, not, not just heaven, bread and wine, marriage, and children and work. Let's pray and prepare for communion.